drop reflecting on the water as the sun shuts her eyes don't know why you're uncovered watch the tide rolling with the moonlight everything is silent on this wheezy Welcome to Missing Magnolias. We are a Louisiana true crime podcast. We're a part of the Acadiana community. We are here to share stories of the missing or murdered, but certainly not forgotten. We want to share stories of victims and their families, anyone whose lives have been impacted by crime. We would love to hear from you guys. If you have a story that you think you would like for us to share or any information, please email us at missingmagnoliaspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Scarlett, your host. With us is my co-host, Michelle, criminologist and professor. Michelle has a really impressive background. You've got your master's in psychology and your doctorate in criminology. Yes. And you're also an Acadiana native. Yes, Church Point native. Well, I'm just going to get right into it. This is a treat for me, especially as someone that knows nothing and has an interest in true crime to really be able to speak with someone who has a better understanding of the field and can offer some real insight. I want to ask you first, what led you to become a criminologist? I was a psychology student in the graduate program at UL Lafayette, was working with offenders through my internship program, because I knew I wanted to work with crime in some facet. In that process, I really realized that the therapeutic process probably really wasn't for me. So I started to look at other avenues of ways to study crime and offenders, and in that time, we had a high-profile missing persons case occur in Lafayette, and that was the McKeshunit case. Because most people know people here in Lafayette, you know, I had some tangential relationships to the family, and so I became involved in the search, like many of us just trying to help out as civilians, doing foot searches, donations, that kind of thing. And in that process, I began to see how um, we talk about people when they go missing, how a missing person's case can destroy families, change communities, alter your perspectives of the world. I decided to pursue criminology in that discovery process and focused on missing persons cases since then. I moved on to the University of South Florida and earned my PhD there. Right. If you can, in kind of a cursory way, what's the difference between criminology and criminal justice for those of us who basically know next to nothing? Criminology, generally speaking, is the study of crime and its causes and correlate. Criminal justice tends to be more of a study of administration and policy, although the fields often overlap. You see lots of programs that are criminology and criminal justice, so they offer a focus in both. I would say that you tend to see more theoretical perspectives in criminology as to the causes of crime than you do in criminal justice. Those are generally the distinctions, but I think they're, they're often interchangeable terms. I don't think anybody would be offended if you used one instead of the other. Everyone remembers the Mickey Shunick case. It was a real big story here. I'd just like to take a moment. One of Mickey Shunick's family members, Charlie Shunick, she went on to start a nonprofit here. It's called Resource Association for Missing People. You can look them up. You can make donations. It's a great resource to have. Ramp is a wonderful organization. And this isn't the only one that's been started by a family member of someone who's been missing. We have Black and Missing. Porchlight is another one um, and several others. We see lots of organizations that are started by a grassroots effort 
by family members or individuals who have been touched by a missing persons case to try and better understand what to do when someone goes missing. That's what RAMP tries to do is help families because no one knows what they should be doing when their loved one goes missing. No one's prepared for that. So it's a fantastic organization in that way. Right. You mentioned a lot of your research just goes into missing persons. I don't think people realize how common it is. You start looking on Facebook, how many posts you see someone's daughter, someone's son, someone's older father that has gone missing. You could probably lend some light on that, especially in what kind of techniques people are now using to go through those channels. You mentioned pre-show you've worked occasionally with law enforcement and some of the techniques. Can you explain a little bit to people listening what that looks like today? Sure. There's a lot that we know and a lot of unknowns with missing persons investigations. One facet that my research examines is the role of social media in a missing persons investigation and traditional media as well. Practitioners, law enforcement, officials, researchers, if you ask them how much it matters, we say media attention matters a lot. But we have historically had a hard time proving with certainty the degree to which media attention shapes a missing persons investigation. One aim of my research is to identify how exposure, both in the traditional news realm and the social media realm, increases the likelihood of recovery of that person. In addition, I work with law enforcement agencies to identify best practices. We know that missing persons investigations have largely moved to the social media realm. They're calling it the new milk carton campaign. Instead of those faces appearing on the milk cartons like they did in the 70s and 80s, those faces now appear on our news feeds on social media. We know that law enforcement has started using social media. We also know that they don't really know the best ways to navigate that realm. Some of my work is trying to identify best practices. Here's this wonderful tool that can get you a significant amount of exposure that may help bring that person home but you have to use it in the right way. You can't just throw every missing person's case that's still open on at exactly the same time and then never touch it again. We also know that the phrases you use can shape engagement. For example, there's a lot of loaded terminology around the phrase runaway. An, an individual might assume that kids who run away are deviant. They don't wanna to listen to mom and dad. They're going to have fun or meet boyfriends and girlfriends. They don't engage with that post because they think, oh, this kid's going to be fine. They'll come back. They're just not listening to their parents. What we know is that those kids are typically struggling with abuse and neglect and dysfunction in the home, and they're at high risk for exploitation out in the runaway experience. Sometimes just changing the term, endangered child instead of runaway, when we make that post can increase engagement and hopefully bring that person home sooner. Wow. I've also noticed you would probably know better there's a lot of misconception about when you can report a person missing. And a lot of times, especially these people that have been missing, maybe they live on their own and they don't check in with people as frequent. And then how important it is for the investigation or finding that person's whereabouts to do it quickly. You can report someone missing seconds after they were supposed to return home and have it. You don't have to wait 24 or 48 hours. You can report someone missing right away. It's law enforcement's job to investigate that case. Now, somebody can say, oh, I'm sure they'll come back. Why don't you just wait a few hours? You don't have to do that. You can demand that that investigation be started and that case opened, and it will occur. They usually want to help you and bring your loved ones home safe, too. You might have to push a little bit sometimes, but it can happen. 
there's some evidence to suggest that those first 48 hours are integral for a missing persons investigation, especially if we're talking about a child. That includes our teenagers and our runaways. We might lose evidence. Crime scenes can decay. Individuals can hide. We need to move as quickly as we can to get all of that evidence as fast as possible. Could you explain what the Amber Alert is and how that's different than separation there? An Amber Alert is a notification system that we have for children who are perceived to be in immediate danger. We have some specific criteria for an Amber Alert. I think the general public isn't aware of this. Sometimes when we hear that there was an injustice, the Amber Alert wasn't started, something like that, it's usually because that criteria weren't met. So you have to have a child. It has to be perceived danger. We have to know that this kiddo is going to be at risk. And we have to have some type of details about the individual or the offender. We need to know maybe a vehicle. We need to know who that offender is or have some sort of identifying information about that offender um, to be able to start that Amber Alert. If we have a case where a child goes missing, but we have no idea who may have taken that child or any details surrounding their disappearance, they might not meet criteria. I guess there's a lot of misconception. We mentioned also with your students, you have a lot of people that are new and interested into the field and they think that it's going to be a, a master class in the inner workings of the mind of Ted Bundy. And you can really say to us, that's really not the case. There's a lot more to what you do. It's, there's a lot of research involved. Can you speak a little bit to that side of what you do? Anybody who joins this field wants to be either in law enforcement or wants to be a profiler. You get a lot of students that come in and say, I want to do criminal profiling. We have to sort of burst their bubble and say, like, that's not really a thing. <laughs> the way that it's portrayed on TV with criminal minds or something like that, it's not a job that exists that looks in any way like that. Oftentimes, we absolutely use research in previous cases to create likelihoods or risk factors for offenders or unknown perpetrators, certainly. My work is far more likely to be research-oriented, reading records, working behind the scenes, using research and statistics to look at likelihoods and probabilities. None of my job encompasses direct police investigation. And usually that's where we see the distinction. You're either boots on the ground law enforcement, including the FBI, or you're working in a research setting or an institutional setting in that way. Rarely do we see those two co-mingled. You're not researching the case file and then out there running, chasing down the bad guys. So there are two distinct sort of disciplines. What certain people are more likely to commit crimes and how to prevent society from committing crimes? Have you noticed any trends in seeking to kind of answer that? It's really difficult. Humans are complex creatures. There's always going to be an exception to the rule. I think we're caught up in the Ted Bundys and the Ed Kempers that we lose sight of the actual offenders who are most likely to never be anything like the Ted Bundys or the Ed Kempers. Those are once in a generation individuals. We as a field tend to focus on generally how do people behave? What are the big causes of criminal behavior? What we see is that it's generally abuse and neglect. If you look at any research on the victim-offender overlap, we see that a large proportion of our offenders have been victims and victims of crime have contributed to delinquent acts or criminal acts. To use the old phrase, hurt people hurt people. If you've been abused or neglected or experienced family dysfunction, that increases your risk of committing a crime. 
It's not an end-all be-all. It's not a causal factor. There's no one causal factor for crime. It's a combination of factors. Once you start on that criminal pathway, it can be harder to pull yourself out of it. You have reduced opportunities for meaningful long-term employment, reduced opportunities for pro-social relationships, and those factors further push you into that criminal behavior. When we think about crime, we often look at life course theories or pathways to offending. A large portion of research today is looking at the victim offender overlap as well as ACE scores and how adverse childhood experiences greatly increase their likelihood of being a delinquent, a serious, violent, and chronic delinquent, and then adult offending as well. Really, when we're talking about offenders, we're often talking about abused, neglected, and sort of lost children. We see that with our runaways as well. They're usually running from abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction. That puts them in this environment that increases their likelihood that they're victimized. Right. It's very consistent with a lot of things that I've watched. We're becoming, as a society, more interested in terms of what abuse they might have suffered as a child and how that kind of plays or what kind of abuse they received from society. Did they fall through the cracks? Were they abused and we didn't note it? It's more of a circular, I guess, kind of look at it. Maybe it's even harder to kind of as a society to raise good citizens that are going to be good and be healthy to their communities. Absolutely. And I think we want simple answers and there are none. Especially in Louisiana, for a long time, we have gotten tough on crime. What that means is we've introduced policies and procedures that sentence offenders to incarceration more often than diversion. So they're less likely to receive services. We're more likely to incarcerate them for longer periods of time than other states or harsher penalties for less severe offenses as well. Where I'll lock them up and throw away the key, by and large, sort of justice system in Louisiana. We have decades of research that shows that that does not work. It just doesn't. It has never and it will never work. The only way to reduce offending is to prevent it or to offer interventions to those individuals. The vast majority of offenders are getting out. Even if we wanted to lock them all up forever, we couldn't do it. We don't have the people who would work in the jails or the prisons to lock up everyone forever. The only real options we have that will work are evidence-based procedures. When we introduce those, we see that they are very successful. For example, the low recidivism rate at Angola Prison, since they've introduced the 14-odd reentry programs that reduce recidivism rate from 50 to 14%. We have pockets of programs that work, and we just don't use them universally. We know that early intervention is best. What a lot of people say as well is, oh, well, I had a hard life. I had a rough childhood. I was abused and I'm not an offender. So if I can do it, then they can do it. We might like to think that, but that's not the key. We all have different experiences in the world. And my degree of abuse and experience may be different than yours. We really need to create programs and interventions that work. Will there be another Kemper in the world? Absolutely. Are any of our programs built to prevent that? No, because they're once in a lifetime kind of people. The vast majority of offenders can and will benefit from programming if we offer them. That's a great conversation to go down to and just in prison reform as well. 
I guess for someone that's interested in what you do and maybe is interested in studying it, what kind of jobs could they hope to get after coming out? Oh, gosh, there are lots of career opportunities in criminology and criminal justice. You can go into all the different facets of law enforcement. That can be federal, state, and local. That can be sworn officers and civilian workers as well. There's also lots of social justice and social work sort of positions that individuals can hold. And I think of who graduates from our master's program in criminal justice and the jobs that they get. We have individuals who work with restorative justice programs in school settings. We have individuals who work for probation and parole boards, individuals who work with law enforcement, individuals pursuing PhDs so they can go into academia, and individuals who work in nonprofit organizations like Hearts of Hope. We have an alumni who works with the Human Trafficking Task Force, lots of victim services opportunities. We have individuals who work with AmeriCorps and programs like that to try and enrich our communities. There's lots of opportunities. There's lots of ways in which criminal justice and criminology and crime permeates our existence. I think a degree, depending upon the level, in criminology or criminal justice can afford you a vast number of opportunities. Wow. That's great. I'm glad you, you know, that was an extensive list. I hope someone's listening that's, you know, at the cusp of school. I think that'll definitely give someone to think about and maybe consider going into this. I hope you have time to read and watch TV. I wanted to close on a lighter note. Is there anything that you've read recently or seen that's been inspirational? Maybe it coincides with your interest in what you do that you could maybe recommend. I'm a bit of a true (laughs) crime junkie. I would wonder if it's too much shop talk or it's too hyped for you. And so that's good that you're also a little bit of a geek and a fan. Absolutely. Yes. I've been listening to the podcast, Someone Knows Something. It's a CBC broadcast. I love really anything CBC. Someone Knows Something is fantastic, especially season three. Missing and Murdered about the missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada is a wonderful podcast as well. Things that I've been watching. I watched Killing Fields not that long ago. I just finished it and I can't find season three, so I'm kind of annoyed. I also like anything that's victim focused because I think we forget about the victims. So a big one locally here is uh, Bayou Blue, which is a beautiful documentary about the serial killer in the Homa area. Oh, wow. Ronald Dominique, that's his name. And he murdered upwards of 25 men in the early 2000s in and around the Bayou Blue area. They interview many of the family members. It's a beautiful documentary. And then Unseen is also a really good one that focuses on uh, victims' perspectives of serial offenders. I think we often forget about African-Americans, minorities, um, when they're victimized. We don't talk about them in the news. I think those two documentaries sort of bring to light some of those injustices as well as uh, direct victim experiences uh, to give some hope to the fascination that we have. Don't get me wrong, I'm fascinated too. I want to read about Kemper's IQ and all of those sorts of things. But we have to walk a fine line. We don't want to glamorize or fetishize any of those serial offenders. And I think we, as true crime junkies, need to do some due diligence and to keep in mind those victims. That was kind of my hope with this podcast, especially since it's local and just kind of knowing some families that have been, their lives have been touched in this way. 
I know that they just want their stories heard. It's almost a bigger story and just how you begin to put the pieces of your life together after the fact. I hope that people are listening and eventually they will write in and then share with us some of their stories because I think it'll be really inspirational to people that also are experiencing similar things. We're all touched by crime personally in different ways, some of us more than others. That was great. And I know that we're going to have Michelle on for more episodes. I'm really excited. So for now, take care. Feel free to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and stay tuned for next time. Thank you. Thank you.